now, so please check me out Tuesday on the Music Emporium. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Bethel Wood Center for the Arts, presenting Santana and Counting Crows in concert on the Pavilion Stage, July 18th. Tickets on sale now. Ticket information at BethelWoodCenter.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. Local news, culture, and NPR. Live from Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty, New York, this is the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dolt. Thank you so much for being here with us this evening. Coming up, we'll get uh, details on that violent threat against Sullivan West School District. And the news that Aileen Gunther will not be seeking re-election. Derek Kirk from the Sullivan County Democrat has more. And we'll also continue to cover the housing crisis in New York State. Talking to Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress for their take on the situation. First up, we have Spotlight PA, a nonpartisan statewide member-funded newsroom based in Harrisburg with the mission of holding the powerful in Pennsylvania to account through independent investigative and public service journalism. And Radio Catskill partners with Spotlight PA to regularly bring you their in-depth journalism. They recently reported Pennsylvania Treasurer Stacy Garrity, who is facing re-election this year, bought $20 million in Israel bonds to show support. Her Democratic opponents question her motives. Protesters urge State Treasurer Stacey Garrity to divest from Israel bonds in light of escalating Palestinian deaths. Questions arise about the motivations behind her decision and implications for Pennsylvania's financial and political landscape. Radio Catskills' Patricio Rabio spoke to Kate Wampu, government reporter at Spotlight PA, for more. When I first read this headline, even before reading this article, the first thing I thought of was, is this legal? Can this can the Treasury actually use taxpayers' dollars for this specific cause? But apparently it is legal. So it just could break down of, I guess, her motivations behind this and how is this legal using tax, no matter where you stand on this issue, using taxpayers' dollars for this particular reason. Yeah. To be clear, Pennsylvania has been investing in Israel bonds for about 30 years now. So it's an investment that the state, has approved of. <laughs> um, I think it's drawing attention now, obviously, because of the sort of geopolitical climate that we're in. But essentially, the treasurer has pretty a wide-ish berth, I guess you could say, about what kind of investments she can make uh, because she's independently elected. She's not answering to the governor or whoever. Um, she was elected based off of theoretically her own political agenda. So for her, the justification that she would say is that this is something we've that's been approved. It's assessed as a good financial investment. Um, and it also happens to promote a state that she would say is a democracy in the Middle East. So once the treasurer sort of figures out with her investment committee that an investment makes sense for the state, that it will provide returns, she can kind of from there has a more freedom in deciding what kind of things she wants to focus on. So the state treasurer has a lot of freedom to do how to handle taxpayers' dollars, is that what you're saying, um, in her discretion? 
Well, I think she would argue otherwise where there is basic financial priorities she has to fulfill. So it's not like, you know, she can invest in whatever she wants. There's the basic priorities of is this in the interest of the uh of the state's finances. Will this make money for us essentially? But then from there, she does have more choice in what she wants to invest in. And to be clear also, yes, we've been investing in Israel bonds for 30 years, but the investment that she added um, in October right after the war was significant. I think it was nearly doubling how much we had already invested in Israel bonds. Has she stated exactly the reason why the increase and specifically said, you know, her support for Israel, is that came out already or... Yeah, in her statement following the investment, she said this is a way to show support for the state of Israel that is currently that was uh, attacked by Hamas following the October 7th sort of t- taking of the hostages. So it was it seemed like it was a direct response to that war. So in your article, you mentioned that there have been protests against this. Um, what has been the opposition? Obviously, I'm assuming just because what's happening in the Middle East is um, has been really passionate uh, protests on either side here. So what have the protesters have been protesting about uh, in this situation? Yeah, and it's essentially that these Israel bonds are backed by the Israeli government. So we're giving them money, essentially, and they say they will pay us back with interest in X amount of years. So we are, the state treasury is giving them money and the protesters are just disagreeing with how Israel is treating the Gazans, Palestinians during the war. That's their government using the funds to um, attack uh, Hamas with huge civilian repercussions. I believe 25,000 Palestinians or Gazans have been killed throughout this war. So it's uh, primarily that the Pennsylvania dollars are being used to back what they would consider a, a massacre of civilians. Now, this is an election year. She is a Republican. She's running for re-election here. So how have the candidates in the other rate in this the Democratic candidates like Aaron McClelland and State Representative Brian Brazaro have responded to the treasurer's investment decision? Yeah, McClelland and Bizarro have somewhat different answers. Bizarro, I think he did say that he didn't know if the investment was a smart choice or reactionary on the part of Garrity, but he did say that broadly speaking, he supports Israel bonds. He didn't clarify as to whether or not he would continue or increase the investment if he was elected, but he did, you know, he says that he's broadly in support of investing in Israel bonds. McClellan was a little bit more stringent in that she said she would hesitate to invest any new funds in any foreign investments at all. Um, regarding Israel bonds, she cited the fact that Moody's rated Israel's credit or downgraded Israel's credit rating following the war. So it would make it exciting. Essentially, it means that it's less likely that Israel could pay us back in the future. So she cited that as a reason for why she would be hesitant to invest any further in Israel bonds, as well as foreign investments as a whole. Right. Now we've mentioned that this is an election year. What do you think some of the potential effects of this decision to invest in Israel bonds and increase the amount of investment into Israel bonds will have on the upcoming election for state treasurer. How do you think voters would react to this issue? Yeah, I think it's just another way that treasury candidates can show their sort of political agenda, where their political ideology, where they stand, which is typically not what voters want to know, but when they're going into the polls. So Garrity has not been shy about 
her political positions being against Reggie. She divested from uh, Chinese securities earlier in, I believe, 2022. She divested from Russian and Belarus security before it was mandated by the state legislature. So she's not shy about making her political standings known. Um, so I think, if anything, it's definitely at least informative for voters to know what her priorities are, what her values are when she's making investments or divesting. Looking ahead, and do you think this might have some broader impacts uh, on the treasurer's investment choices in going future, on future treasurers, on exactly um, what they're investing taxpayer dollars on? Yeah, I do think it's context dependent. I think that you know, we were trying to find when we were doing this piece if there had been treasurers in the past that had divested or invested on foreign securities based off of you know whatever foreign policy was happening at the time. I believe in 2011, the state decided to divest from Sudan. But other than that, we couldn't find too much. So it's not completely unheard of, you know, the treasurer getting involved in foreign policy. I think it's just pretty rare. It's not super, super common. Um, that being said, you know, like the treasurer is elected in the state. So it's a, it is a political office. You have a, a political theory, a ideology, agenda, some, whatever you want to call it that does form the decisions that you're making. I have definitely spoken with sources who say they would rather that the treasurer doesn't get super involved in foreign policy. But I've also spoken with sources who say if it falls under if the investments are still considered secure and good investments, then the treasurer can do whatever she wants. So I think it does depend on the person essentially and the foreign, uh, the foreign policy event that is happening. But yeah, broadly speaking, I, I think that to an extent you can't prevent foreign policy from affecting financial decisions. Kate, before we go, uh, is there anything else we have not touched on you want folks to know about uh, this particular article about the treasurer's investment oh. that we have not covered yet? In, in, in <laughs> you know, I don't think anything in particular. I think there's maybe some something to be said about treasury candidates being able to promote an agenda and a policy. I know Carity has spoken against this thing of that's called ESG investing environment environmental, social, and governance investment where the investor uses those categories to inform what kind of investment decisions they make. So even big companies like uh, Vanguard, S&P, they have ESG stocks that are different from their normal index stocks, but prioritize companies that have good environmental practices or social practices or whatever it may be. So that's like another angle to look at when you are thinking about who you want to elect as treasurer, if you want a treasurer that prioritizes that. I believe that's something that McClellan has talked about a little bit, but I don't think Bizarro has yet, at least not on the record. We're talking to Kate Wampu, okay. governor reporter for Spotlight PA, talking about the Pennsylvania treasurer, Stacey Garrity who's facing relush this year, and people are questioning her investment into Israel bonds. Uh, Kate, thank you so much for joining us on this program and letting us know, giving an insight into um, some insights to the political world of Pennsylvania. Uh, we'll talk with Kate again from Spotlight PA. Thank you so much, and take care. We appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, Patricio. And you can read this Spotlight PA article on our website. Go to wjffradio.org. Next up, our continuing coverage on the housing issue. New York housing advocates feel that New York State is not taking the affordable housing crisis seriously. 
Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress released a report about how New York's neighbors are taking state-level actions to address the housing crisis, and they're looking at New York State, wondering if the same thing might happen here. Radio Catskill's Lying Tong spoke to Adam Bosch, president and CEO of Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress, to tell us about new insights in this latest report. Welcome, Adam. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. As we all know, New York State is going through a serious housing crisis. Could you explain to us how serious the crisis is? The crisis really comes in two forms. It's a crisis that has to do with affordability, and it's a crisis that has to do with availability of housing. On the affordability side, we have seen prices for both home ownership and rents really go up a lot in the years just before the pandemic, and certainly during the pandemic and ever since. In the nine-county region that we study, and we compared that to the mortgage that the median earning family would qualify for in each of those counties, and what we found is that the gap between what a median family could afford and the median housing price was more than a hundred thousand dollars in every single county, and in some of our counties, it was more than two hundred thousand dollars. And so, in that sense, what we've been saying is that home ownership in the Hudson Valley right now for the typical family is really shut down. That has an effect on the rental market because more families, more households, more singles and couples are persisting in rentals for longer because they don't see that graduation to home ownership being accessible to them. And so, as a result, the demand for rental housing goes up, and that pushes up the cost of rental housing. We don't have more people living in the region now than we did before the pandemic. It's just that the constitution of who we are has changed. We are much more made up of sort of metropolitan area、uh, folks moving up into the region than we were before. So. That has had an effect on availability on the housing market. We've seen the stock that is for sale decline anywhere from fifty to seventy percent in just five years. There are many, many fewer homes off for sale on the market now than there were before the pandemic, and a lot of this has to do with the simple fact that since two thousand eight, we have simply not built much. We have built only about 0.45 units of housing for every job that we have attracted to the region, and at the same time, there's one other thing that's affecting a lot of this, and that's that if you want to argue our population is roughly flat, the size of the family is getting smaller. So what that means is that the pie is the same size. But we're cutting the pie up into many, many more slices because now our typical family size is three or four. It used to be four, five, or six, and so for every family unit, of which there are now many, many more, you need a housing unit, and so all of this puts stress. So, what are the ramifications of this crisis on the residents in the state? One of the ramifications that we see of the housing crisis that is very concerning to us is we have lost to migration. Migration being the movement of people county to county and state to state within the country, we have lost a net of 135,000 people to outward migration in the past 25 years. The number one reason they give for leaving the Hudson Valley is housing. 
And so what that is rolling up into the migrate, the outward migration, the lower birth rates, it is pointing us toward a shrinking population in the future. And we are beginning to feel that now in the region as the baby boomer generation retires and there are fewer people coming into the labor pool to replace them. Industry sectors across the Hudson Valley, whether it's tourism, hospitality and food or manufacturing or warehousing and logistics, practically every industry sector, including healthcare, is now beginning to feel significant workforce stress. And one of the key ways that we can try to alleviate that workforce stress and that population decline is making up for what has been a really big shortfall on the housing development side of things. Wow. It seems the housing crisis is intertwined with other workforce crisis and the whole system in the county. In terms of policy, what actions can local government take? What can we learn from other states? We know that the governor proposed last year a very aggressive housing compact that received a mixed reception across the state. We know that this year is an election year. Um, there are a lot of things that are ingredients in the soup of what ultimately gets done in Albany or not done. But one of the things that I think we need to understand is that a big argument against the original housing compact was home rule. Here in New York, we are a home rule state. That essentially means that the state long ago passed laws that gave local communities, towns, villages, and cities, the authority to pass laws or create zoning, design, essentially design themselves, so long as nothing they did was in violation of state law. That's what home rule is. We approach home rule in New York very differently from the states that surround us, most of which are also home rule states. So the states of Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania are all home rule states. So, for example, in Massachusetts, they passed something called the Anti-Snob Zoning Act. I know that's a funny name, but it is a real thing. And the Anti-Snob Zoning Act um, essentially creates a system where when a municipality rejects a development project or imposes onerous conditions on it, that the developer is entitled to appeal the municipal decision to a statewide housing appeals committee. If your municipality has 10% or more of its housing that is already affordable, multifamily, you're not subject to that panel. So in Massachusetts, they either say, listen, you are going to set aside a certain proportion of your geography, of your town, to affordable housing, to multifamily housing, to duplexes, triplexes, apartments, or you're going to be subject to us reviewing it. They also in Massachusetts require that towns that have a bus terminal, a train terminal, a subway stop, a ferry stop, that they have to have at least one zoning district that allows a gross density of 15 units per acre. Think about what that is saying. If we are going to make public investments in infrastructure, in transportation, then we want the maximum number of people to be able to live near it so that they can utilize it and help pay for its maintenance and operation in the future. So in New Jersey, they have something called the Mount Laurel Doctrine that arose from a court case that essentially said that towns are required to provide for their fair share of the affordable housing needs for the entire state. 
And every 10 years, there's a calculation based on population and economic growth trends about what that fair share looks like. And the towns have to come up with a plan for how they're going to meet their fair share. What the state is saying in New Jersey as a result of the court decision is, hey, every town has to participate in the provision of affordable housing that allows us to maintain a workforce. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So what's the difference between New York State and other neighboring states? The interesting thing in New York, and the way that we're different, is that these landmark court decisions didn't yield systems or regulations or anything at the state level like they did in our neighboring states. They yielded some degree of punishment at the local level where a locality had to change its zoning as a result of these court decisions. But it, even though these case law applies to the entire state, we never set up systems of governance, systems of regulation, systems of checks and balances, systems where we modified our home rule laws to make sure that our towns were providing for their fair share of housing in the way that our neighboring states did in response to case law. And so here in New York, what we find is we find ourselves significantly behind those states in meeting the regional demand, in setting up a system where we understand that our towns have to provide for their fair share of the regional and statewide needs. And as a result, we have little pockets of the coalition of the willing that are doing their part, so what you end up with is we kind of have a you have this patchwork of a coalition of the willing, and you have a patchwork that includes some people who are part of a different coalition that is really against having a adequate quantity of diverse housing that's necessary to sustain their workforce and our regional workforce. I think the question for the Hudson Valley and for the Catskills and for the state as a whole is, are we going to have systems of zoning and incentives and requirements that really encourage and promote the type of housing that we know families are going to need? Or are we not? And if we decide not to, are we prepared for the ramifications, which are, we'll continue to be short on nurses, and we'll continue to be short on teachers, and we'll continue to be short on the people who work at the local restaurant and at the grocery store and who handle your medical records and do all these jobs that are really, really essential to making our world work. It's a very insightful conversation today. And thank you for your time and sharing these insights with us. My pleasure. Say hi to the people at WJFF for me. I spent a lot of years up in the Jeffersonville area. Tell those wonderful folks I say hi. In Liberty, I'm laying town for Radio Caskill. Thank you, Lying. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get the latest local news from the Sullivan County Democrat. Stay with us. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Hey, it's Steve Inskeep. And I'm Aisha Roscoe. One of the things you can count on from NPR and this station, we've got your back. When it comes to reporting the news, bringing you facts you can count on. You can help by donating a vehicle you no longer need. That car could be worth hundreds of dollars in support or more as a donation. Think about it. 
We accept any vehicle, running or not, including cars, trucks, boats, RVs, motorcycles, and more. Donate at WJFFRadio.org. Welcome back to the Local Edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. And right now it's time for our update with the Sullivan County Democrat. Patricio Robayo spoke to Derek Kirk, editor of the Sullivan County Democrat, who starts off with an update on that recent threat against Sullivan West Central School District. A Narrowsburg man made a threat online that was circulated Thursday, and he was arrested Friday morning around 6 a.m. But the parents and others of the district definitely were not happy that they were not informed Thursday night or Friday morning, but found out Saturday that the events had taken place. The school district, in conjunction with Sullivan County Sheriff's Office, went through a timeline of events of what they were called um, and noted that they believed at the time that it was uh, the appropriate thing to do and that communication could be better. Following the board meeting, members of the board noted that they believed that the perpetrator, Stephen Kelly, who was 37, um, after he was arrested, was charged with a misdemeanor. Uh, there are a number of people who believe that the misdemeanor is a little too light of a charge. And there were talks of bringing prepositions to Albany to see if they could alter the laws around threats of mass harm um, to push for tighter and uh, more punishable offense. So more to come on that in the future, uh, if that makes its way up to Albany. Moving on here, there's another story that long-serving assembly person Aileen Gunther would not be seeking re-election this November. I saw a press release that was released out on social media. Um, what can you tell us about her not running for re-election and the possibilities who might be taking her place? Absolutely, yes. New York State Assemblywoman Aileen Gunther released a statement that she would not be seeking re-election to the Assembly in November. Gunther, who made the announcement on Friday, uh, has represented the 100th Assembly District for over two decades, uh, which includes both Sullivan and Orange Counties. Uh, and she was first elected in 2023 to fill the vacancy left by her husband, Jacob who passed away from cancer. Uh, since 2013, Gunther has served as the chair of the Assembly's Mental Health Committee and said some of her greatest achievements during her term were passing the Safe Staffing for Quality Care Act, as well as securing billions of dollars in funding for mental health services. Gunther also concluded by saying that she will continue to help serving the community in other ways and looking to take her place in the elected position of Assembly person. Several sources have noted that Paula A., is seeking the Democratic line of candidacy. And on the other end of the aisle, there are four candidates expected to run on the Republican ticket, according to Sullivan County Republican Committee Chair Greg Goldstein, who noted those four as Camille O'Brien of Senator Peter Oberocker's office, Bill Sipos Jr. of Forestburg, Lisa LeBou, who ran against Gunther in her last re-election effort, as well as Lewin Rosia of Rock Hill. That's definitely going to be a big change for the landscape here in Sullivan County. And moving on here, uh, what can you tell us about this local yearly event that raises money for uh, for heart disease? How much did they raise this year? Absolutely. So for the 46th year in a row, 98.3 WSUL hosted its annual Heartathon on February 16th at Resorts World Catskills Casino. And they raised over $80,000, just north of $80,000. Uh, with one of the largest donations of the day being the a ten thousand uh, dollar contribution from Resorts World themselves, in tandem with the fund drive, 
They also held a blood drive. I believe it was the rotary during the event, which resulted in 37 pipes of viable blood donations, which will save 111 lives. So a lot of red shirts, a lot of smiles, photos and scenes of the day can be found on page 1B of this edition of the Solomon County Democrat. Moving on to legislature, uh, there's some news. Last time there was, the start of this year, there was an interim Sullivan County attorney, and it seems like the interim Sullivan County attorney, Robert Freehill, now appointed as the Sullivan County attorney. What can you tell us about that situation at the Sullivan County legislature? Absolutely. Yes, the interim county attorney, Robert Freehill, he's a former Orange County Court judge. He was appointed as the new Sullivan County attorney at the legislature meeting on Thursday, February 15th. Uh, he was appointed to the role by a vote of 6-3 to three and had served as acting assistant county attorney since the beginning of the year after former county attorney Michael McGuire's term was not renewed uh, with the new legislature. The position is for a yearly salary of $180,920. Voting no on the appointment to Robert Freehill to the position was District 1 legislator Matt McPhillips District 3 Legislator Brian McPhillips, and District 5 Legislator Kat Scott, who all voted no to Freehill. However, they said that it did not have anything to do with Freehill as a candidate, just the process in which it happened. So more to come on that in the future and on future news in the Solomon County Legislature. We have another, I hate to end it here in a tragic story, but there was someone in the Crystal Run Rock Hill Urgent Care who came in and Blasey killed himself, I believe, in the lobby of the Crystal Run Urgent Care. Yes, from what we know so far, we know that a man died by suicide via a gun wound in the Crystal Run Healthcare, and that the state police and Sullivan County Sheriff's Office are continuing the investigation. So we don't know a ton right now, but we will continue to be in conversation with both departments of law enforcement to find out the story and uh, hopefully bring some closure to just a horrific turn of events at Crystal Run. Thank you again, Patricio. Thank you, Derek. And thank you for listening. I've been your host, Jason Dole. This has been the local edition. I'll be back tomorrow evening to do it again. Uh, until then, like I said, keep listening. We got the daily up next.